Thanks, Michael. Hey, everyone. My name's Ming, and I'm one of the pastors here at UniChurch. It's great to be here with you all. And what a cracker passage, right? Real gut punch. And uh, Matthew 5 to 7 has a number of these gut punches. Uh, we're working our way through the Sermon on the Mount. Actually, we're working our way through all of Matthew, but we've hit the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, and this week, we're actually hitting what I'm sort of saying is a two-part mini-series in this part of the Sermon on the Mount. So if you look in your outlines, we've actually named this Kingdom Ethics 1. So this is the first part of what we're calling Kingdom Ethics 1 and 2. Uh, and I'm just going to be dealing with the principles, uh, and it's a massive and big topic. Uh, and so we're actually going to have a question time after. We have question times every so often, and this would be a great week to um, submit any questions you have coming out of the sermon, or just questions you have in general. Uh, the number will pop up on the screen. Uh, but before we dig in, uh, why don't we pray and ask God to uh, work, in, work in us through His Word. Let's pray together. Uh, Dear Heavenly Father, we do thank you that uh, you have acted and spoken in various ways throughout histories. Uh, and in these last days, you have spoken through your son, Jesus. You have spoken clearly to us and revealed yourself in him. And so as we look into your word today, as we look into Matthew 5, might we be reminded of this and might we recognize your son, Jesus, for who he is, our Lord and Savior. Uh, as we unpack your word, might it lift our eyes and might we see your son, Jesus, and be captivated by him. And we ask for this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, there are many objections people have when they, uh, they come up with when they learn or first hear about Jesus or Christianity. You know, they ask questions like, oh, if God is good, why does he allow suffering in this world? Or, or hasn't science disproved the Bible? And people often ask these questions as if they've never been answered before, uh, as if they can say, gotcha, that's why I don't trust Jesus or the Bible. Uh, but usually these objections uh, can all be bundled into five or six common questions. Uh, recently, though, uh, there's been a different objection that's come up in some of my conversations. And it's a weird one. And when I first heard it, I wasn't exactly sure what the person was asking. You know, they said to me, they were saying in my convo, uh, you Christians are such hypocrites. You think you can tell me what to do when you're happy to eat prawns and bacon? When I first heard that, I was like, What? Where did that come from? If only they knew I liked eating prawns wrapped in bacon, then they'd really know I'm a hypocrite. <laughs> but after a bit of wrangling, I worked out what they were saying. They were saying, you seem to pick and choose which parts of the Bible, especially the Old Testament, that you want to stick with. So the bits that affirm the bits that you disagree with, well, then you say that's the Word of God. But then you seem to just ignore these other parts that say, oh, don't eat pork or don't eat shellfish, and definitely don't eat them together. And more and more recently, I'm finding that this is the gotcha question that I've been running to. But what's scary isn't so much that we don't have an answer. What's scary is that Christians who do run into these sorts of questions go, yeah, yeah, why do we do that? Why do we practice certain things and not others? And then it raises questions like, oh, what role does the Old Testament have? And in particular, the law. What relevance does it have to us as Christians today? I mean, it's two-thirds of our Bible, isn't it? Should we just tear it out and stick with the final third? Well, more than any other, this little passage we're looking at today, we're only looking at the first four verses, uh, answers those questions. But I'm not going to lie. Uh, this is a tricky passage, and there have been centuries of discussion around this passage by many great minds. So I'm looking forward to some of the questions that might come up later. Uh, but sometimes, you know, Jesus uses these uh, beautiful and simple metaphors. Kind of like last week. Last week he described Christians as the salt and light of the world, right? And we have our clear take-home message. 
Christians are meant to look and seem different to the world around them. But other times, we get passages like today, a bit more complex. But it's often the tricky or complex passages like these that truly grow our appreciation for just how rich, deep, and massive God is. But let me just say, if you're here and not yet a Christian, what Jesus is doing here is he's revealing what's at the very heart of Christian ethics. How Christians make everyday moral decisions, both in the big and in the small. You know, often my friends think that Christians are boring or conservative. They don't know how to live. They're buzzkills. But I want to put it to you that what Jesus is setting before us offers incredible joy and a real freedom that nothing else this world can offer. So let's jump in. Come with me from verse 17. It's up on the screen. Jesus said, Don't assume that I've come to destroy the law of the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. Now back then, the law and the prophets was how they referred to the whole Old Testament. It's like Jesus was saying, I don't assume I've come to destroy the Old Testament. I've come to fulfill it. Now why would Jesus need to ask this, say this? Why would people think that Jesus came to destroy the whole Old Testament? Well, that's what the Pharisees and religious leaders of the time were saying about Jesus. And Jesus really did seem to be encouraging people to ignore the, old, to ignore the law of the Old Testament. So if you read through the Gospels, like Matthew's Gospel, various accounts of Jesus' life and what happened there, you can find many examples of this. For example, Jesus went around on the Sabbath, a day you weren't meant to work on according to the Old Testament law, and found someone in need and healed them. And then the Pharisees said, how can you do that? You're working on the Sabbath. You're healing people on the Sabbath. You're breaking the Old Testament law. And on top of that, Jesus would often call out the Pharisees. He called them sinners, even though they were the ones who prided themselves on keeping the very letter of the Old Testament. So people started to wonder, Jesus must be against the law if he's against the Pharisees, because the Pharisees love the Old Testament. But Jesus answers that criticism in verse 17. Let me look at the second half of it again. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. Jesus is saying, I haven't come to get rid of the Old Testament. I love the Old Testament. It's the word of my Father in heaven. I've actually come to fulfill it and show you what it's all about. Now, the key word here is fulfill. Jesus fulfills. He brings to completion the whole Old Testament. And in doing that, he changes how it applies to us today. And the question is, is how? How does Jesus fulfill the Old Testament? Well, the whole New Testament shows us all the many different ways Jesus fulfills the Old Testament. And this is why you'll come across phrases like, as it was written, or Jesus did this to fulfill this. And in some parts, it's really obvious how Jesus does that. Kind of like the predictive prophecies of the Old Testament we talked about a few weeks ago. So for example, the prophet Isaiah he says a suffering servant will come and die for the sins of humanity. And it's quite clear how Jesus fulfills that, right? When he died on the cross. But it's not just these predictive prophecies that Jesus fulfills. Every single aspect of the Old Testament points forward to Jesus. So let me give you a few examples. In the Old Testament, there's all this focus on the temple, how to build it, how important it is, and so on. And it said this, the temple is the place where God comes to meet with his people and God's people meet with God. Now in the New Testament, in places like John's gospel, Jesus says, all that business about the temple, all of that text, I fulfill it. 
Because in me, in Jesus, you meet with God. So have a look at Colossians chapter 1, verse 19. It says this, For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, in Jesus. You meet God through Jesus, not some building. Let me give you another example. In the Old Testament, there's all this talk about priests and sacrifices. Now, what was the job of the priest? The job of the priest was to stand between the people and God. And in particular, their job was to offer animal sacrifices to pay for the sins of people to turn aside God's anger. Now, don't ever call me or any of the pastors a priest. You know, I had someone call me that the other day. Uh, Maybe that's a bit of a joke, but um, you can call me and the pastor lots of other things, but don't ever call us a priest. Because the New Testament says there are no more priests like that. The only priests are every Christian here, and we follow the one high priest, Jesus. So when you read those bits in the Old Testament that, uh, that talk about priests, we don't then go, oh, we better find someone descended from Levi to then go to a temple and offer sacrifices for us. Now, that was all talking about Jesus, the one who is our great high priest who stands between us and God. But more than that, we haven't sacrificed a goat or a lamb here at church recently, have we? You know, there's all this talk in the Old Testament about spilling the blood of animals and offering them up to God. Why don't we do that? Because it was all pointing forward to the one true sacrifice that was made 2,000 years ago on a cross. When Jesus, the true Lamb of God, died for the sins of people. For... Now, I've only given a few examples. You know, there are so many more. I could be up here all night. But the point is, Jesus doesn't destroy the law and the prophets. He fulfills them. You know, here's one passage where Paul brings it all together. It's in Galatians chapter 3. It's up on the screen. Now, the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. He does not say, he does not say and to seeds as though referring to many, but referring to one and to your seed, who is Christ. All the promises of God right from the very beginning have been given to and find their fulfillment in Jesus. But what does this all mean? How does this all help us know which parts of the Old Testament to keep and not to keep today? The first thing to understand is this. God's moral standards, his moral order does not change. God is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. And so God's moral standards do not change as people change over time. You know, just because society has changed, how there are things society used to hate and now love and used to love but now hate, and it goes up and down like this, God's word, constant. God's wisdom, constant. His moral standards, constant. They don't change just because people do. So have a look with me at Matthew chapter 5, verse 18 in our passage. It says this, For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or one stroke of a letter will pass away from the law until all things are accomplished. Jesus' point is this. Every bit of the Bible, both the old and the new, offers us some wisdom for salvation and righteous living. And it still speaks to us today. But we must do this through the lens of Jesus, through the one who has the authority to interpret God's law for us. Now, this is a big light bulb moment, and I want to I stress this point. See, last week, we saw that as we're working through the Sermon on the Mount, just as Moses gave the whole Old Testament law on a mountain, Mount Sinai, here, 
Jesus is saying, I'm the new Moses. I'm interpreting for you the Old Testament law on this mountain. And next week, which is the second part of the series, we're going to see how Jesus does this with six examples. So stick around for, the, for that. But here's the thing. Applying Old Testament laws today can be incredibly complex, especially when you try to understand you know, any obscure or weird laws in the Old Testament. And I think there's two main reasons uh, that we struggle with this. The first is that the Old Testament laws have multiple functions. You know, often we fall into the trap of narrowly simplifying or reducing Old Testament laws to one purpose. But part of the complexity is that the Old Testament laws have multiple purposes. So for example, the laws about the Passover in Leviticus 23. The Passover was a feast that was told, they were told to be observed year after year after year. There is an obligation, a command from God to do this. But there's also a teaching function to it. The Passover meal was to remind the Israelites how in Egypt, God passed over them and spared them the punishment they deserved in the Exodus. All at the same time, there is a prophetic function to this law. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, it's up on the screen, Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. In other words, the Passover to be observed is Jesus' death for us. Jesus' death means God passes over and spares us the punishment we deserve. It would be a mistake to simply map one-to-one Old Testament laws about the Passover to what we now see in Christ. Now, I can't cover them all, but let me give you one more example. The food laws. Why did God forbid Israel from eating certain kinds of food like pork and shellfish? Now, on the one hand, the law often makes a big deal about being holy and unholy, clean and unclean, and the teaching function of the law helped Israel to know exactly how to be distinct from the other nations that just ate whatever. But at the same time, there is genuine wisdom behind these laws. You know, some would say one of the purposes of these food laws was in God's wisdom to protect Israel from eating raw or uncooked food. And it's a well-known fact today that pork can carry a number of diseases, which would have been far more likely back then. Now, if anyone's wondering, I do love me some crispy pork, so I'm not hating on pork. But more importantly, there's also a prophetic function to these food laws. So in Mark chapter 7, you can check it out later, Jesus declares all food is clean. And it's not what goes into a person that makes them unclean, it's what comes out. It's our hearts that need cleaning. And the one who changes our hearts, cleanses our hearts, is Jesus. Now, I hope we're sort of starting to see that there's more to the Old Testament laws than just arbitrary commands. They point us to Jesus, Jesus interprets them for us, and they're God's good wisdom for life. Now, the second thing we run into and struggle with is what I call progressive revelation. We can sometimes forget that the Bible, all of it, is history. And it details all the different ways God has worked and spoken throughout history. And today, we're standing on this side of Jesus' death and resurrection, right? And we have way more to work with than what they had back then. Absolutely, back then they had enough. They had enough to put their trust in God and know He was trustworthy. But not enough to know exactly how Jesus is the fulfillment of the law and the prophets and the whole Old Testament that was being built up. You know, this doesn't mean that everything God said back then is irrelevant. It simply means that there's been a movement from truth to more truth 
to full truth in Jesus. So what difference does it make? What difference does it make being on this side of history? Well, we now get to see that Jesus fulfills the whole law. Firstly, he fulfills it by doing it. He perfectly understands and perfectly keeps the heart of God's laws. As for us, when we look at, the, at God's moral order in the Old Testament, what do we see? We see failure. We see sin. Jesus alone loved God with all his heart, soul, and mind. Jesus alone loved his neighbor as himself. Jesus fulfills the law in a way that no other person has ever been able to do. And this is why we can only be declared right with God through faith in Jesus. Jesus did it perfectly for us. Jesus died and offers us his perfect life. It's Jesus' work that declares us right with God, not our own. And this means freedom from the punishment of the law and freedom to live God's way. But how do we work out what living God's way looks like now? And this is the second way Jesus fulfills the law and the key way our passage speaks about today. Jesus fulfills the law by bringing it to completion. Before Jesus, the law is like this unfinished picture. It's a shadow. You know, I was trying to think about how to illustrate this, and uh, you can kind of think of it like an alley-oop. You know, I love the NBA. I love watching its highlights. Maybe, maybe it's because I'm too short to, to play in the <laughs> to play basketball. Uh, and almost always, uh, if a game has an alley-oop, it's going to make the highlight reel. So the alley-oop is like this pass to the basket, and then one of the players comes flying along, grabs it midair, and slams it home. Uh, you can't have the, the dunk without the pass. Otherwise, it wouldn't be a highlight. And it's kind of like the same with progressive revelation. If we only looked at the Old Testament law, we're only looking at the past. If we only look at Jesus or the New Testament, we're only looking at the slam dunk, which, to be fair, is the best part, but you can't have one without the other. Because of progressive revelation, this side of Jesus, this side of history, the law and the whole Old Testament finds its end and its culmination. And in Jesus, we get to see what it really means to keep the Old Testament law. But before we get there, I hope after all this, the next time someone whips out that gotcha question I've been running into, you can now start to see and say to them, it's because we have an Old and New Testament. You can't just map the two onto each other, but the thing that binds, connects, and illuminates the two is understanding Jesus. Now I get you know, all of that was probably a bit heady, a bit dense and complicated and tricky, uh, but it's so important to just understand that the whole Old Testament is all about Jesus and finds its fulfillment in him. If you've still got questions, you can text them up on the screen uh, or speak to me or one of the pastors, uh, or you can even just write them down in your Connect card a little later on. So if the first two verses were about Jesus and the Old Testament, the last two verses, verse 19 to 20, are about us and the Old Testament. So turn with me to verse 19, and it starts with a therefore. In light of what we spent the last 20 minutes or so on, because God's law is not abolished, stands forever, and is fulfilled in Jesus, verse 19, therefore, whoever breaks one of the least of these commands and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. And it's pretty clear, right? How could anyone read that and say, I'm a Christian, but I want to ignore what God says in any part of his word. 
And then how could anyone claim to be a Christian teacher of any kind and still say, those parts of the Old Testament, they don't have any relevance to you now. It's not possible, is it? Jesus says greatness in the kingdom of heaven is about your attitude to all of God's word. And his point is this. Because God's word stands forever, the great ones in God's eyes are the people who love his word, all of it. And in particular, those who seek to share it with others. Now, take a moment to digest all that and just think for a moment. Back then, who would the people have thought were the great ones in the kingdom of heaven? Who do they know that practices and teaches even the least parts of God's word? Where, where, you know, they would have gone that. That person over there or those people over there are the ones who will be great in the kingdom of heaven. I'm not sure who came to mind for you, but back then, it was the Pharisees. It was the scribes. It was the religious leaders. Back then, they would have said, if anyone is great in the kingdom of heaven, if Jesus had just stopped at verse 19, they would have said, if anyone, it's the Pharisees who are the great ones in the kingdom of heaven. See, if the, see the Pharisees were the ones who were totally fixated on the laws of the Old Testament. You know, they worked out that there were 248 commandments that you had to keep in order to keep the law. And then they worked out that there were 365 prohibitions yet to not break. And they worked on every one of them to the letter. So for example, the law said tithe. Give 10% of everything you earn to God. So they went out to their herb garden with their clippers. And then they said, oh, here's the mint. Here's my ruler, 10%. Oh, here's the basil. Here's my ruler, 10%. They were that serious about keeping the law. Surely if anyone is great in the kingdom of heaven, it's the scribes and the Pharisees. But then Jesus says something that would have absolutely shocked everyone listening. And it's in the very next verse. It says, verse 20, For I tell you, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never get into the kingdom of heaven. Can you imagine the people's response at that point? They would have been thinking, well, hang on. Who could possibly surpass the righteousness of the Pharisees? Are there five more laws that they haven't worked out that we need to keep? Are there five more prohibitions that we don't even know we're doing that we need to stop doing? How can anyone be more righteous than the Pharisees? That's like saying you need to run faster than Usain Bolt, cook better than Gordon Ramsay, have more subscribes and likes than PewDiePie. To figure this out, we need to understand how the law finds its end in Jesus like we talked about earlier. See, it wasn't just that Jesus fulfilled the law by doing it for us, which he did, let's not forget that, but the fulfillment of the law was pointing, but the fulfillment of the law was pointing to a time where God would dwell with his people and his people would love hearing from God. And the difference between the Old and New Testament isn't the law itself, but it's the place of the law. No longer was it to be written on stone tablets, It was to be written by God's Spirit on the hearts of His people. And it's in this way that Jesus brings the law to its completion. See, all the prophets of the Old Testament, they looked at the law, and they saw more than just its teaching function. They saw more than its moral obligations. They recognized its prophetic purpose. And all the prophets looked forward to a time where the place of the law wouldn't just be on stone tablets or some massive tome, but be on the very hearts of God's people. 
So have a look with me at Jeremiah 31. It's up on the screen. There's just one prophet. Instead, this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days, after the exile. The Lord's declaration. I will put my teaching within them and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. Another prophet, Ezekiel, uh, it's in chapter 36. And this is God speaking up on the screen. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will remove your heart of stone and give your heart of flesh. I will place my spirit within you and cause you to follow my statutes and carefully observe my ordinances. The point Jesus is making is not, if you like, how many laws you keep. It's actually about our attitude towards the law. You see, the righteousness God desires for his people is a righteousness that impacts the heart and comes from the heart. Not a righteousness is about ticking off boxes and saying, oh, I've kept that law, and I've kept that law, and I've kept that law, and really, it's only skin deep. See, the righteousness the Pharisees worked on was all about keeping the letter of the law and no more. So the Pharisees looked at the Old Testament and they said, oh, it says don't murder. Well, I had a lot of people, but I didn't kill that guy. Tick, I'm righteous. The law says don't commit adultery. Well, you wouldn't want to know the things that I thought about that woman, but I didn't actually get to the point of sleeping with her. Tick, I'm righteous. The law says, love your neighbor. Well, that guy's two doors up. He's not my neighbor. I don't have to love him. That's what the Pharisees did. And can I tell you, there's a Pharisee in every one of us. We've all asked the question. I've asked that question. Is it a sin if I do this? You know, we've all thought about ways on how we can minimize God's standard. How much can we get away with and still say, oh, I've done my bit, I'm good. And despite all their talk about keeping God's law, the Pharisees kept the bare minimum and then took pride in it. Jesus says, this is not the righteousness God is after. God wants a righteousness that comes from a changed heart, not one that's only skin deep. So when God's law says, don't murder, a changed heart doesn't say, well, I didn't kill that guy, tick. A changed heart says, I actually need to work on forgiving him and showing him kindness even though he's wronged me. When God's law says, don't commit adultery, real transformation doesn't say, well, I kept my pants on, tick. Real transformation goes, I'm not even happy I thought about it. And I need to work on getting rid of those thoughts. I need to stop treating people as objects to be lusted after. When God's law says, love your neighbor, true righteousness doesn't try to argue, then who's my neighbor? No, it says, that person's in need. I'm going to help them. Now, next week, if things are still looking a little unclear, we're going to unpack more of these in more detail and see what that really looks like. But today, I hope we see that a changed heart isn't about minimizing God's law. It's about delighting in them, loving them, and pursuing them more and more. It's about recognizing the law as God's good and incredible wisdom. That things are infinitely better for me and for society if only we treated each other this way. It's seeing God's wisdom as the best thing for us. This is the righteousness Jesus is talking about. This is a righteousness that surpasses that of the Pharisees. Now, hearing that radical call of Jesus should create two responses in us. The first is where we go, wow, wow, Jesus is asking a lot of me. Who could ever enter the kingdom of heaven? That's the first response. 
See, if you heard all that talk about true righteousness and you thought, good, yes, that's me, yep, I've got the righteousness that surpasses that of the Pharisees, you either weren't listening very carefully or you're deceived. None of us have this true righteousness. You know, I have sinned when I've been up, while I've been up here preaching to you. you know, I've, had, I've had bad thoughts to those of us here who've had their eyes closed while I've been up here preaching. You know, I didn't murder you, but in my heart. I'm only half joking. The main point is that we look at our hearts and realize Jesus shone a torch in there on me. And Jesus knows, uh, and deep down we know, who could ever enter the kingdom of heaven if that is the righteousness I need. And it reminds us, this is why I need Jesus. You know, Matthew chapter 5 was Jesus preaching all before the cross in order to get us ready for the cross. And this first response is a recognition that I am not good enough for the kingdom of heaven. And so I need Jesus. If you're here today and you don't yet trust in Jesus, why not today? What's stopping you? There is no other way, no other person, no other idea that can repair our broken relationship with God. If you have understood what true righteousness is, then you have understood just how amazing Jesus is and how much we need him. So why not trust him today? But if you're here and you're a Christian and you're really feeling the weight of this first response, the question for us is, do I just want to be a part of God's kingdom or do I want to follow the king? You can't have one without the other. And the thing is, Jesus is not actually asking that much of us. You know, later on in Matthew chapter 11, he says this, Come to me all who are weary and burdened, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. You know, it's not that there's no yoke or burden, but Jesus is saying, I'm the king, and this is the best way to live. This is what you are made for, and God's wisdom for our lives is truly good. Now, this connects to our second response, and the second response is to say, well, now, as a member of God's kingdom, because I trust in Jesus, this is the type of righteousness I want to have. This is the type of righteousness I want to show in my life. And this response, you could say, is supernatural. This is exactly what the prophets like Ezekiel and Jeremiah were looking forward to, where those who trust and follow Jesus are given a new spirit, new hearts that yearn for righteousness and says, I want to live God's way and teach others to do the same, verse 19. I want to show in my life a righteousness that surpasses that of the Pharisees, verse 20. Not to earn my way into the kingdom, but because I am a part of the kingdom and I follow an amazing king. And this is a reality because Jesus has given us, given us his spirit. He's fulfilled the law by writing it on our hearts. You know, everywhere we go, we have to pay for something. You sign up for a gym, you pay. You go to a supermarket, you pay. Even what you earn at your job, you have to pay taxes. What if everyone was suddenly told, Pay as much as you'd like. What would happen? Things would go out of business and people wouldn't pay tax because we hate taxes. But what about churches? Churches are completely member funded. Come as you are and if you want to, give to the work of the gospel here at EV. Have you ever wondered how is this possible? How we can do something that is so difficult for other institutions or clubs? Because of changed hearts. 
It's because God's own spirit is working in the lives of people. It's real. Now you might hear all that and think, man, Christians are so weird. But hang around. Keep exploring what Jesus is teaching here with us and you'll see truly that this is a better way to live, a way to have true freedom and real transformation. Now you know, it's really easy to become like a Pharisee, isn't it? So easy to look for exceptions, why you don't have to obey God's word, or why it's okay for you to not do that. It's what I call Christian exceptionalism, where we say God's law is wonderful for other people, just not me. I'm different, I'm the exception. It's so easy to minimize God's call on us to merely keep the appearance of the law. But that is not the heart of someone who's been transformed by Christ. But it's not just Christians who need to hear this. It's all of us. Laws on their own cannot lead to real change. We will always come up with reasons why the law doesn't apply to us. Why we don't have to pay tax there, or why it was okay for us to go over the speed limit there, or why we can download music and movies and software because everyone else is doing it. We all have hearts of stone, don't we? But the question for us is, have we seen what true righteousness is? Do we trust the one who is truly righteous? My hope is that we love God's word, all of it. But even more than that, we see who it's all about and are captivated by him. Might we be people who don't simply put on a religious and godly front, but instead have hearts of flesh that reflect God's spirit working within. People who delight in God's wisdom for us in the Old Testament, right through to the New. And here's the thing flowing out from last week's passage being on, on being salt and light in the world. It's the righteousness that flows out from in here, our hearts, as we are shaped and molded by God's spirit that will really make us stand out in the world. You know, people can spot Pharisees and people have nothing but contempt for Pharisees. But the thing that truly lifts people's eyes to the kingdom of heaven is heart-shaped, heartfelt, inward righteousness that flows out into how we live each day. And next week, if things are still not looking tangible enough, we'll get to see just how that, what that looks like as we unpack more of that. So come back next week. God has more to say to us. But as we close, let's pray that we might see our need for Jesus, be captivated by him, and by his spirit continue to transform more and more into his likeness for the whole world to see. So let's pray together. Dear Heavenly Father, we do thank you that as we come before you, you do not leave us as we are. You take us as we are, but do not leave us in that way. That you have given us your son, Jesus, and you've given us his Holy Spirit so that we might be transformed into his likeness. As we continue to look to him, read your word and drink deeply from it, might we love your word, all of it, and recognize your son Jesus for who he is, our Lord and Savior, and be captivated by him. Might we delight in the wisdom that you have imparted to us, and might we live lives that stand out to the world around us. We ask for help of this through one another, through your spirit, and through, through your word, the Bible. Um, we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to a sermon recording from Auckland EV. We hope you found it helpful, and if you'd like to find out more about Jesus or about church, we'd love to get in touch. So check out our website at aucklandev.co.nz for more details. Thanks for listening.